2017, a pair of students decided to start a podcast about insects. These students promptly escaped from the office to the recording studio. Today, they continue to avoid their real work and survive by making podcasts. If you have a question about bees, if no one else knows the answer, if you can contact us, maybe you can ask the bee team. Hello and welcome to Entocast, a brand new insect podcast kindly sponsored by the Royal Entomological Society and this is episode one, telling you all the things you want to know about insects. And even I'm sure some things that you don't want to know or didn't realise that you wanted to know. I mean, yeah, probably most things you don't want to know, but they're (laughs) quite interesting anyway, so bear with us. Today we're going to talk all about bees. Bees are a group of insects which belong to the order Hymenoptera. Mm-hmm. And Hymenopterans are insects that have little hooks called hamuli between their uh, two pairs of wings. Yeah, that's right. Four wings on a Hymenoptera, which is one of the easy ways to differentiate them from other things which might look a little bit like a Hymenoptera, but they're not. Within the Hymenoptera, we have uh, sawflies, we have social wasps, solitary wasps, parasitic wasps, ants and bees. The thing that separates bees from the rest of these is they are basically vegetarian wasps. Yeah, I think that's probably the best way to differentiate them. They don't eat other insects. What they eat instead is pollen and nectar. And they collect that for their young. And that also leads us on to one of the easiest ways to recognise a bee is because they are hairy. (laughs) If yeah, you see fluffiness, like I said. <laughs> if you see a, a fluffy insect with four wings, it's probably a bee. I think the best and oldest example of a bee is around 100 million years old. They found a bee, well, not 100 million years ago, but they found <laughs> in amber um, a bee that was 100 million years old. The most basal hymenopterans were the sawflies. And these are different from the rest of the hymenopterans, which we call apocritin hymenopterans, because the apocritins have a narrow waist between the first and second abdominal segments. Now, this waist is really handy for making the abdomen far more manoeuvrable. So this provided an advantage to that they could move the abdomen round and offer positive like much faster or into different angles into their host. I'm just imagining some like Pilates style wasps now with their overpositor yeah. swinging around <laughs> downward facing dog with like the overpositor facing well, dog. If you, watch, if you watch some of these like laying into aphids, it, it is like that. They're facing forwards and then their abdomen just comes up past their face into the aphid. It's fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> Define fantastic. I'm not sure that's too not fantastic. Not the aphids. The, aphid. yeah. <laughs> the aphid's probably not too happy about that situation. Yeah. So from within the apocrita, uh, the aculeates arose. These hymenopterans have modified their ovipositor into a sting. And all bees have stings, don't they? So they're directly descended from this group that modified the ovipositor to a stinger. Yeah, that's right. Although a lot of the bees, their sting is so small, they wouldn't be able to sting a human. We're not what they're designed to sting, really. They're mostly designed to sting other insects. Why do we think the bees arose around this time? Uh, a lot of it has to do with the fact that flowering plants... A good 30, 40 million years earlier arose. And um, in the past, before then, plants had just scattered their pollen to the wind in order to pass on their genes, in order to get their pollen to the female part of a plant. 
But it's a ridiculously inefficient process. Um, it's basically like scattering your sperm across the street and hoping that it'll impregnate someone. <laughs> it's not a great process. So getting insects involved was a way to um, overcome this. What we think happened with the bees, they arose from a group um, in the superfamily Apoidae. And this is the bees and the specoid wasps. Mm-hmm. So there would have been a common ancestor between the two groups. And these speckled wasps, part of the group of wasps which provision their nest cells with the eggs with um, paralysed prey. What we think's happened is this prey acts as a protein source for the developing larva of the speckled wasp. Pollen is also a very good protein source. And inside these nests, whether contamination by pollen or pollen maybe on the insects that have been put in there as the prey, at some point the group that became the bees started to utilise the pollen instead. So then the adult bees would, instead of collecting prey, would go to flowers and just collect the pollen there as the protein source. Pollen puts up a lot less of a fight than uh, insects. (laughs) (laughs) This is true. It's probably a lot easier to stockpile as well than insects. Yeah, and then basically since this point, bees have just been evolving more and more efficient ways to collect and carry pollen back to their nest. I think if you know anything about bees, you probably know that they're pretty damn good at pollination. Bees are probably the most efficient pollinators, and that's because, apart from mating, uh, pretty much all their energy just goes to collecting floral resources and bringing it back to the nest. They do a lot of visiting, and uh, some species in particular have quite a high fidelity to certain flowers, which... If you're only going to one type of flower, you're increasing the chance that you're going to pollinate that flower. Whereas if you went to just one individual of several different species, that's no good for the flowers. The other thing which makes bees really good at pollinating is they're hairy. One of the definitions when you're looking through taxonomic keys to see if it is a bee is they have these branched hairs. And a lot of bees are covered all over with these hairs. And these aid with the gathering and holding of pollen. So they have what we call the pollen basket, the corbicula. And so on lots of bees, this is on the hind tibia. And these are long hairs over which hold a big lump of pollen. And if you see bees visiting flowers, you sometimes see these big lumps of pollen in their corbicula. The hairs all over the body will attract the pollen. And actually, as the bees fly through the air, their wings are beating so fast, they build up a static charge across their body and across these hairs. So when they land on the flower, loads of pollen just sticks to them. like It's like rubbing a balloon on your hair. <laughs> and then they come back and they're just a big ball of fluffy polleny mess, which then they carry around. Some bees as well are quite good uh, pollinators because they're actually quite messy at collecting pollen. So you said that some bees use uh, pollen baskets. I know that a lot of solitary bees have a, a scoper, which is like thick hairs on their underside. And um, they basically scrabble up a load of pollen in that. And it's quite a messy process. But in, for some plants, that can actually be quite a good thing because they want lots of pollen. They don't want it to be neatly packed away. They want pollen to be transported from one part to another. Yeah, so these are the bees in the uh, Megachilidae family. Another reason why they're so messy and the pollen just gets everywhere, which is good for the plant, is because unlike other bees... They transport the pollen dry. So some bees, they'll mix a little bit of nectar with the pollen to make it wet and sticky so they can stick more into their pollen baskets. But like you said, these megachilidae just scrambling it in all over the place and there's just pollen going everywhere. It's beautiful. The reason that bees are better than other pollinators is other pollinators, it's more incidental, the mm. fact that they pollinate. They're just visiting the flowers for nectar 
um, and maybe a bit of pollen as well, but they're not going there and provisioning lots of it for their young. And it's the young that the bees are doing it for, which is why they put so much of their energy into actually finding uh, pollen and nectar from plants. It's not just the fact that they are enabling reproduction between plants, which is obviously great for the plants, but there's also a lot of evidence as well that this can improve the yields of crops and it can even improve the quality of some crops. So I know there's been studies on apples and it's improved the quality and the taste and the size of the apple uh, by having pollination occur. Apple's quite a nice example, actually, because they have these flowers and then they have these different parts of the flowers um, and the fruit, the apple fruit, you know, sometimes you see them, they're not perfectly round they have like one side which is a bit small and deformed oh yeah that's because that side of the flower wasn't pollinated really is that what that is yeah so if you get a nice perfectly round big apple every part of it has been pollinated oh wow that's really cool so that's like a direct example of how pollination can increase the quality of the crop i have to mention as well it's not just crops that bees are important for it's all variety of flowering plants that they can be useful for there's been a lot of focus on conserving bee species for uh, pollination of crops. But for a lot of bee species, that's not actually a very productive thing to do because a lot of bee species don't actually do well on farmland and they're not interested in the flowering crops that we have there. So you can't just focus on pollination as a reason to save bees because there's only certain types of pollination that we're interested in Whereas bees will focus on a lot of other types of plants that we're not necessarily interested in. But that has a very important value as well. It's kind of this trade-off. Do we want to protect just one or two species which happen to be really useful to us? Or are we trying to safeguard diversity? Um, And there's lots of wildflowers and associated pollinators. Well, and there's obviously the knock-on ecological effects. Let's say for simplicity's sake that if there was one pollinator that only pollinated one plant, if that pollinator went, then that plant would go. But then everything that ate that plant and everything that relied on that plant would also they would have knock-on effects on them. There are, I mean, there are good reasons to do it, but I think a lot of the research is actually focused on this idea of crop pollination as a reason. And it's a very good reason. It's mm. worth billions, yeah. like, because they do it for free. And in areas of China where they've seen enormous bee declines... And they've had to literally pay human beings to go and wander along and sort of tickle flowers. It costs an extortionate amount of money compared to, well, basically free yeah, for bees. It's a particular valley in uh, in southeast China, isn't it? Where um, the only reason where it's economically viable to do that is because the cost of labour is so low. And other places around the world, you just wouldn't be able to do that. And as soon as you lost yeah. the bees and the pollination went, you just have to say goodbye to the crop. Exactly. Like if we, that was something that occurred in the UK and you had to pay people to do it and you had to pay for the tea breaks and <laughs> their biscuits and things like that, it would soon be just astronomical. It's surprising how many times you talk to people and it could be anyone and their general perception is that there's just honeybees and bumblebees and that's it just two species that's that's bees if you're lucky yeah (laughs) if they know more than honeybee then i'm usually happy to be (laughs) honest there are around twenty thousand species of bee worldwide Mm -hmm. and actually just here in the uk we're quite a small Mm -hmm. island and usually we don't have thousands and thousands of um, species um, like you might get in the tropics in the uk alone we have over 270 species of bee how many of those are honeybee? Oh, uh, let me... Uh, one. 
So yeah, one honeybee. And the funny thing about the honeybee anyway is it's not even a wild bee. It's a domesticated species. It's basically like insect cattle. <laughs> I mean, that is a funny way to look at it. I'm not quite sure you'd heard cattle like that. but <laughs> Although in the US, they have big trucks full of um, honeybee hives. So I guess you can herd it as well. <laughs> yeah. We've got one species of honeybee and then we have 24 species of bumblebee. Can you name them all? Uh, <laughs> so um, lots of them nest underground uh, they like yeah. things like old rodent holes um, mm-hmm. some of the very common species um, you, you get in your garden and stuff um, things like the buff-tailed bumblebee Bombus terrestris these are typical kind of bumblebees they nest underground they produce a colony they're social bees so they have a queen and workers then you have others uh, which are sometimes called carder bees which like to nest in tussocks of grass, so kind of on the surface of the ground, but buried down in thick vegetation. And then we also have the tree bumblebee, Bombus hypnorum, which uh, has only recently come to the UK. It originally was found around Scandinavia, and it kind of spread down into Europe, then westwards across Europe, and then come up in kind of completing a U-shape across a channel into England, and um, spread quite rapidly across England from south to north. And now you can find it pretty much everywhere, all the way through to Scotland. Do we think that was related to climate change, or was it just a shift in its... We're not really sure. We think it was just a natural spread. Um, The nice thing, although it is kind of, in a way, a foreign species, it's not invasive in the sense that it hasn't been detrimental to our native fauna. Uh, One of the reasons we think why this might be is because they like to nest, as the name suggests, tree bumblebee, they like to nest quite high up. They love things like bird boxes, which is another reason why they might have spread so well in England. Ah, yes, we love our birds. We love birds, (laughs) and loads of people have bird boxes. So they're not competing with the rest of the bumblebees for nesting space, and uh, they seem to be fairly generalist in the flowers they're going to, so they haven't been really uh, competing with other bumblebees for resources. So they're they're a welcome addition. And the groups of solitary bees we have in the UK, we have several different groups, don't we? Yeah, there's a huge diversity here. Well, Um, there's 250 species, aren't there? Over 250 species, yeah. And more and more all the time. So uh, last year, a new species was described. And also there's occasional species which show up every now and then. We're not sure if they're established. Uh, So these solitary bees range from tiny little uh, things that are a few millimetres long all the way up to giant carpenter bees. Now, these aren't established here, but they turn up every now and then, probably in shipments of timber. I think they may have bred a couple of times, but they're not an established breeding population. And these are massive bees. These are bigger than bumblebees. They sound like helicopters flying past your head. If you go on holiday to Europe, uh, sometimes you you see them. They're big black things, sometimes quite violet-coloured wings. Huge diversity in size um, in the bees, but also in their ecology and their life history and where they nest. So we have lots of bees which are mining bees. They like to nest, as the name suggests, digging holes in the ground. So if you have a lawn and you see little volcanoes of loose dirt, this quite often is a type of mining bee. One of the really attractive ones is Andrina fulva, the tawny mining bee, which is a bright red furry one, and that loves going in lawns. So in the spring you'll, you'll see them around. I, I must admit as well, uh, when I was a younger man, I, I, I thought those were just tiny mole holes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they do look a little bit like that. Yeah. <laughs> and then, uh, then there's the, the cavity nesters. So if you have holes in an old wall, then you'll almost certainly see bees popping in and out of these holes, as well as other things like some cavity nesting wasps. 
Uh, one of the most common of these is the red mason bee, Osmia bicornis, which I think uh, you know something about, Nick. Oh, I, I know a fair few bit about <laughs> this bee. Yes, now this is uh, one of my study species. I say one of my study species. It's supposed to be my main study species, but I just can't help myself when it comes to pollination. So I look at three different pollinators. Um, I've seen to be full. <laughs> one's not even a bee, so... Brilliant. This is true, like, <laughs> all of the pollinators. Um, uh, Osmia bicornis... They're cavity nesting bees, so they find natural cavities and they nest in them. Don't worry, they're not actually damaging. I think there was a video that went around viral last year where there yeah. was a mason bee pulling, pulling a, a nail, nail out of a wall. wall. Yeah. Um, again, they're not doing any damage. That bee was on something. I'm not quite sure what, but... <laughs> I think that video was set up as well. They'd actually yeah. pushed the nail into its nest, so no, of course they're going to try and get out of the way. They just pushed the nail into the nest, and to be honest, like... It probably wasn't that much effort. It wasn't literally pulling nails out the wall. So don't worry about your houses, people. There's not going to be bees going around pulling nails out the walls to be like, <laughs> I want a cavity! Let me in! These are one of the most common species which will nest in bee hotels. Um, you know, yes. The kind of things you could buy from a garden centre or make yourself, which is a lot easier. They're pretty happy to nest in most things. As long as the tube size is around about 9mm in diameter, then they're quite happy to nest in it. You can buy these from your garden centres and things. They're great bees to watch because they are very, very happy to just go about their business. And because they build the sections in their nest using mud, they're really fun to watch because they go to flowers and they come back with loads of pollen and then they go and get some mud and you see like these massive mud balls in their mandibles as they go back, pack it all up and you can see them building along. They're really interesting bees to watch. They're very cute as well. And these, these are them. one of the um, Megachilidae yes. family. So these are one yeah, of the ones with the scoper on the underside. And yeah. you can see it's bright orange scoper. Yes. And you can see them frantically scurrying pollen into it. The only way I can describe their ability to pollinate is it looks like it's terrible, but it's actually pretty good. Just because <laughs> they're just throwing pollen all over the place and they're just scrabbling it away. For that reason, they're actually very useful, especially in orchards um, and, and apple trees, like we were saying mm. before. They're actually very good pollinators of these because they spend a long time on the plant and they scatter a lot of pollen around. Whereas a honeybee is a bit more neat. It licks up its pollen, packs it down nicely, so you don't necessarily get that much pollen being scattered onto the plant. They're very good and they've got a wide distribution. Uh, these bees occur all across Europe. There's a couple of different subspecies. We fortunately got one of the better looking subspecies in the mm. UK because they're bright orange, uh, which is quite nice. Thus why they were called Osmia rufa, which is basically Osmia red. Yeah, that's <laughs> the old name. It's a bit of confusion. And then when you go to the Channel Islands, it's the other subspecies and it looks completely different so it can be quite confusing yeah no it was quite confusing so we eventually have settled on osmia bicornis which is named because on their face they have two little horns so by the females yeah. yeah on the female yes um so that's an easy way to identify so what do they use these horns for it seems to be mostly decorative like, yeah. it doesn't seem to serve any particular function One of the things that people are always really curious about when I say that I'm working on bees is what's happening to them. Uh, because when you see in the media, there's a lot of news stories of something, especially if you follow something like The Guardian. There's a lot of <laughs> news stories about bees are doing badly, bees are declining. We're all going to die. Like last, yeah, we're all going to die. Um, that sort of thing. I mean, if you saw the episode of Black Mirror, um, yeah, then you know what we're talking about. <laughs> and I think last year as well, there was quite a lot of... Um, people 
thought the bees were going extinct because there were some species that had been declared extinct in Hawaii. Um, but yeah. I, I, somehow through the media wrangling, that <laughs> just turned into bees are going extinct. Uh, but yeah, if we want to just sort of briefly touch on what's actually happening yeah, to the bees. Just try and dispel a few of those myths that are out there. Well, I think one of the key ones is um, a lot of people, when they think of bees uh, declining, they think about honeybees. And mm. I think they conflate colony collapse disorder with more general bee declines. Yeah. Bee declines. Um, to try and differentiate the two, bee declines refers to all species of bees across the world declining generally. So yeah. their population, population abundance and their distribution, the distribution yeah. is declining overall. Not for all bees, but as a general trend, is declining. Whereas colony the collapse was a specific incident happening in the United States um, for honeybees that were being kept by beekeepers. And essentially, honey beekeepers would go out one day, the bees would all be there, and they'd come back another, and they'd all be gone. And there's like these photos of piles of dead bees and stuff. And... Yeah, I mean, it was very um, dramatic when mm. it was happening. Yeah. We still don't really know what caused it. I think there are several different lines of research in the literature. So colony collapse order was quite a specific case just for honeybees and mostly in America. More generally, what uh, declines are happening with bees... To summarise, it's probably an indicator of more general biodiversity declines across the planet. Yeah. Like biodiversity, all the plant and animal life across the planet is, as a general trend, declining. And bees are probably just quite a good indicator of that because they have several different pressures all coming together to synergistically cause declines. It's like the perfect storm of bee death. <laughs> That's an awfully dark way of putting it, but yes, I know what you mean. One of the main problems in the UK has been uh, land use change. So in the mm. UK, we used to have a lot more meadow, uh, and this meadows would be full of wildflowers, which are obviously great for bees. But this is now being turned into more monoculture type mm. permanent pasture for cattle. I think there was this really scary stat that since the end of World War Two. The uh, traditional hay wildflower meadows have declined by 95%. Yeah, so that was actually in the National Ecosystem Assessment carried mm. out by DEFRA. Basically, after World War II occurred in the UK, we put a lot more effort into producing enough food for us because essentially we'd found out uh, when we were cut off from the rest of the world that we weren't self-sufficient in food. That wasn't a great situation to be in. The other thing was the hay meadows were traditionally provide a lot of the food for animals so they produce feed for horses which were used in agriculture and also uh, horses were used in in the wars as well uh, after the wars there were a lot less horses around and um, so there was less needs for hay and then we had the move uh, later on to silage where we'd have this real um, intensified grassland where lots of fertilizers were added which was really great for the grass so the grass would grow really well and you could get multiple croppings uh, in a year but for all the other things, particularly the wildflowers, it's a disaster. I mean, you look at a silage field and there'll be very little floristic diversity in that field. Diversity of uh, flowering plants and things have declined. Uh, this has obviously had a knock-on effect on bees. And that, as a general trend, is true for quite a lot of the develop and developing world. Uh, so that's land use change that is thing. We're also seeing climate change affecting bees. 
So for some bees, this is causing a mismatch between them and the uh, plants they rely on. So a lot of bees overwinter and their cue to end overwintering is often temperature, not always, but often temperature. Whereas for plants, it may be day length and it's causing a mismatch between them. So that's causing not enough forage for bees when they emerge after overwintering, which is when they need it the most oftentimes. Climate change is causing changes in temperature and it's causing shifts in uh, where they are present. So you've got the, the changing in the timing and also you've got the changes in the distribution of the bees and the plants they rely on. Yeah. So there's two things that could potentially be out of kilter. The other thing with climate change as well is it's, it's not just general trains in temperature, it's also things like extreme weather events. So for things like insects, which are so reliant on the current environmental conditions, especially something like a bee, uh, you, you only see bees flying around when it's sunny and not too windy, mm-hmm. especially these small species. Oh yeah, definitely. So as soon as it gets you know stormy, that's it. And if it's stormy at the wrong time, for example, when they're just emerging from uh, diapause, which is their overwintering state... Um, that could be a disaster for populations if you had like a week of, of storms. And that's why you get these kind of natural fluctuations in populations. But when you add this into all the other pressures and climate change, which is increasing mm-hmm. the turbidity of the climate, um, it, so it's one of again, with the synergy between the changing temperature and the changing frequency of extreme weather events. There's been... Uh, various different studies about uh, how pesticides use has affected uh, bees numbers as well so that could be another factor that's causing declines but it's not all bad news I mean some bees um, are doing okay and there is increasing visibility of bee declines and I think there's been a lot of people getting more interested in various different charities so I think the Bumblebee Conservation Trust for instance was set up fairly recently and they've done some work trying to bring other bees back to the UK that were here originally yeah, and um, Bumblebee Subterraneous Project yeah, yeah so they brought back um, a bumblebee that had originally been in the UK and we'd sent it over to New Zealand in order to help pollination of the crops that we were taking there that weren't suitable for the native pollinators and then we managed to bring it back to the UK. It's quite an interesting story though because they weren't able to bring back the ones from New Zealand because of the timing of the seasons and the transport it's very easy to take a queen from winter and take over to New Zealand and the timings work out but to bring it the other way was really difficult so what they've actually done for this project is they've gone to a population in Sweden which is genetically very similar to the population that was in the UK. And also people like Bug Life are doing a lot of good work for pollinators in general, and particularly bees. There's lots of different projects going on, like Urban Buzz and Bee Lines. Yeah, I mean, we may moan that everyone thinks that all bees are honeybees, but at least more people are aware of bees generally. Yeah. And, and that can only be a good thing, surely. Yeah, surely that is only a good thing. <laughs> Although we're entomologists, so we might be biased. I think overall I wouldn't be too worried because whilst there are declines and some species have been hit particularly hard, other species are doing just fine from from the current data on uh, abundances. Some of the common species don't really appear to be in too much trouble. If we want to ensure the diversity and richness yep. for future generations, Absolutely. then it's something that we want to take note of. I mean, I'd hate to lose a single species. One of the questions that I don't know why I've been asked this quite a lot. I think I just know a lot of vegans. Um, 
But basically, a lot of people ask me, should vegans eat honey? And, you know, to start off, I don't work on honeybees. Um, but when I say I work with bees, people, ah, oh, they're like, oh, okay. So I've had a go at, like, thinking about this and answering this. And, I mean, to be honest, it's kind of up to you. Yeah, it's like, a personal choice. I don't really mind what you eat, but if you're asking whether it's, like, morally right, um, then essentially honey only really exists as a byproduct of what bees are doing anyway. And we are keeping bees for more than just honey. We're keeping them for pollination. And um, beekeeping is actually in decline. So if you buy honey, especially if it's local honey, you can actually help ensure that there are people looking after honeybees. Because while you do see feral colonies of honeybees, generally honeybees don't exist that much in the wild in Europe and in America. You are basically helping bees if you buy it. I read some articles that were basically claiming that it's enslavement of uh, bees. And uh, like, to be honest, this is literally their life's goal and ambition is to collect pollen and nectar to make honey. And if you're a decent beekeeper, you won't take too much. You'll just take some of the excess. So it's not really too much of a problem. But like I say, up to you. <laughs> this relates to a question that I get quite a lot is um, do all bees make honey and the short answer is no honey um, comes from the honey bee uh, this is bees surprising yeah <laughs> this is bees from the genus apis and in this country it's just apis mellifera the only one we have there are other species of honey bee if you go to Asia um, and the reason that this species makes honey is unlike the bumblebees and the solitary bees the honey bees their colony survives through the winter. So solitary bees will all die off and it will just be overwintering pupa um, that will survive. And in bumblebees, the colony dies off and it's only the new queens, which were produced at the end of the year, which will then diapause through. Whereas honeybees, the whole colony, uh, it might reduce in number, but the colony will survive the winter. Um, so the honey is essentially just a food store. It's a larder. Um, so that's why... They put so much effort into making and protecting this resource. Other bees, like bumblebees, they do make a honey-like substance. But because this is only just for the odd rainy day when they can't go out of forage as much, it's not something that's got to last all winter. They only ever make small quantities of it. So it will never be viable for us to come along and steal it like we do for honeybees. <laughs> steal it's quite an emotive way of putting <laughs> yeah. it. But yeah, we do essentially steal it. But it's fine, they've got spare. Um, another question I get asked, um, I'm not, again, I don't know why I get these such esoteric questions. I've been asked before, like, can honey cure my hay fever? So I think this is a rumour that has gone round for a lot of people. And I can see why, because it's based on an idea that is actually a well-established idea called immunotherapy. Uh, so ingesting something can help you build up a tolerance. And this has shown a lot of promise with things like peanut allergies. So there is backup to this idea. But for honey, we don't really know. I was only able to find one peer-reviewed study, um, which was blinded and properly controlled and everything. About a billion blogs about it, but only like <laughs> one peer-reviewed study. And in this, they found that there was absolutely no difference between a placebo, which was just corn syrup, and eating honey in terms of the effect it had on hay fever symptoms. 
That being said, that's only one study, so we don't actually know with any confidence. And eating honey, unless you're allergic, won't really do any harm to you. Yeah, I guess the idea is that um, it's pollen that causes hay fever and there is pollen in the honey. Yeah, so, I mean, it it logically makes sense, but there isn't really any evidence for it. But like I said, there's about a million blogs that say it works, so, you know, that must be true. You can find a blog to say anything. It's true. Have you seen mine? (laughs) Another question I get asked quite a lot is, uh, do all bees die after they sting? And again, this is something which is unique to the honeybees. Uh, The honeybees are the ones with the barbed stinger. And what happens when the bee stings you is the barb gets caught, stuck in your skin. And then as the bee moves away, it pulls out the sting and the venom gland attached to it. And the venom gland will carry on pumping venom. And if you look carefully, you can see it pumping away and also part of the guts. So the bee won't die immediately, but she will die shortly afterwards. Now, all the other bees we have in the UK, the bumblebees and the solitary bees... Um, they don't have this barb. So if they were to sting you, they would be okay. Yeah, now I can personally attest to this as well because I've been stung by many bees and <laughs> they seem to be mostly okay. Most solitary bees are too small and their stings are too pathetic to sting you anyway. No, I've been bitten more by solitary bees yeah. than I have been <laughs> Me stung. Me too. <laughs> I think it's worth saying as well that it's only really because we've got this thick skin. Mm, it's like a big gooey thing to sting into yeah. Isn't it? yeah i mean normally they're stinging other insects which isn't such a problem but our skin is a bit of a problem another question that i've been asked is again it's one of these other like myths that's been perpetuated about bees and this is the idea that scientists have said that aerodynamically bumblebees can't fly and in the bee movie if you saw that piece of um, <laughs> it starts off with that quote but it actually misses out the uh, bumblebee part and just says bees can't fly <laughs> so like the, the actual quote is from a beauty entrepreneur uh, called Mary Kay Ash who obviously is very entomologically knowledgeable who said that aerodynamically the bumblebee shouldn't be able to fly but the bumblebee doesn't know this so it goes on flying anyway and this is you know, it's probably quite a good motivational quote. It's like, people tell you you can't do something and you do it anyway, but no one's saying that aerodynamically bees can't fly because they can. Like, so <laughs> other, to say otherwise would be to defy the laws of physics. But anyway, anyway, the theory of how this actually started was that the French entomologist August Magnan, so this French entomologist said in his book Le Vol des Insects, Insect Flight, that all insects cannot fly due to some rudimentary maths, because essentially the wings are too small for their relatively large bodies. I think the key is here, though, insects don't fly in the same way that planes do, or even birds do. <laughs> They're completely different. No, this is true. I'll actually put in the show notes some slow motion videos of insects flying, because it's really interesting to watch. Because insects have flexible wings, it enables them to flex as they flap, And as they do this, it creates mini vortexes underneath their wings, which creates lift. Throughout the entire wing stroke, they're constantly creating lift because it's folding over. So it's almost like continuous flapping. Yeah. And because this is such actually a really efficient way to fly, 
There's an area of uh, science called biomimetics, where you try and copy things that are done in nature to use in technology. And it's a very efficient way of flying. So they're looking into seeing if they can get drones to fly like that. So, yes, bumblebees can definitely fly. Um, <laughs> they just don't do so in a conventional way. Not really uh, a question that I've been directly asked, but it's something that I talk to people quite a lot about. Not all bees are as they seem. And in fact, quite a significant group of bees aren't our lovely flower-visiting, hard-working, hairy beauties. (laughs) (laughs) But they're actually thieves and parasites. In particular, they're kleptoparasites in that they steal the food of other bees. So these are sometimes called cuckoo bees. But pretty much every species of uh, solitary bee and bumblebee has at least one associated parasitic bee. And these are bees which take advantage of all the hard work done by the host and they sneak into the nest. And in the case of most of them, they'll sneak in when the bee's out and they'll lay an egg quickly on top of the pollen provision. This one will hatch first and eat all the pollen. The other type is the cuckoo bumblebees. These are a little bit different. I like to call them slave-making bees, bumblebees. <laughs> they fly around and find a colony of the host bumblebee and she will sneak in and she will, not necessarily straight away, but eventually she will take over the colony uh, either by directly killing the queen or just through chemical warfare from pheromones winning the hearts and minds of the workers until the other queen kind of just crawls into a corner and gets really sad and dies. <laughs> oh, and yeah, such a sad description of it. <laughs> she effectively enslaves the host bee workers to raise her own brood. I guess it's a very effective strategy to pass on your genes if you're successful, but it, it, it sounds so cruel. <laughs> yeah, and but it's quite difficult because they have to get the timing right because if they go into the colony too early in the year, there's not enough workers to successfully raise her brood Mm. but if she goes in too late then there's too many and they mount a good defense so just to time it for the colony just the right size but you find with a lot of these cuckoo bumblebees they're they're especially big and strong and they've got very thick cuticles like they're built for fighting (laughs) very cool i'm just imagining very very buff bumblebees now (laughs) walking in a bit like this is my colony now i love it as well because some of them have got like really dark wings and they just look like Kind of the black Villains. knight of the yeah. <laughs> bee world. <laughs> like Darth Vader style bee. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, I think that's actually all we've got time for this week. I hope you've enjoyed us going through a sort of roundup of generally uh, different facts about bees. Hopefully we've dispelled a few myths. And as you can probably say, we could talk about bees all day. So if you have any comments or questions about bees, do feel free to add them to the comments section. Or you can email us at entocast at gmail.com. And we'd just like to say thanks again to the Royal Entomological Society for kindly sponsoring this podcast. leads quite well onto bee evolution so that's probably evolution bee evolution uh, I mean I, I'm mostly trying to get as many puns as possible into this episode <laughs> that is my main aim for the episode that shouldn't be hard oh for Christ